you are now listening to Into the Macroverse, a comprehensive, all-in deep dive into the Stephen King cinematic universe. We are your hosts, Jacob Willett and Levi Hill, here to transport you to the multidimensional playground known as Stephen King's Macroverse. Please kick back, put on your favorite pair of noise-canceling headphones, and join us as we journey the first in a big franchise of films many series uh, you know a lot of films came out i think it was like what five or six i thought there was like eight children of the corn something something like like that that. because there's also a modern remake i'm pretty sure in the 2000s we haven't quite gotten there yet and i'm pretty sure i think it's just a uh just like another sequel i think so yeah but it's very hands-off for stephen king because he didn't write any of those this was the only one of those films that he had written But let's just start off with the basic film's premise. It takes place in Nebraska, which is one of the only Stephen King films to have not taken place in Maine. Yeah, and that's really surprising because we've seen before um, in many of the uh, films that we've watched, considering the macroverse, it all leads back to Maine, but not this one. And that's so interesting to me. Of course, it's still a very, very small town called Gatlin. What the hell is Gatlin? Gatlin. I've never heard of, Yeah, exactly. Gatling gun? I've never heard of this place before. But we, we follow the two characters, husband and wife, Pete, um, Burton and Vicky. Burton's kind of a weird name, but... They call him Bert. Bert. There we go. So it's these two, and they're going around driving to... Where was their end destination again? They were trying to go... Uh, Somethingburg. Somethingburg was the name of this... I forget the name of the city, but they were headed out because Bert just recently got a new internship for uh, medical reasons, and he was going to study there to be a doctor, and he said he was going to see 50 patients a day. 50 patients a day. That's pretty steep when you're working an average eight-hour shift. It is, and especially trying to apply care to everybody in an emergency room, no less. Exactly. So you can tell that these two characters have a pretty good head on their shoulders. They're still pretty in love, at least what we see from the kind of awkward introduction of the film. Like, just let the maid go clean the room. And it was his birthday. And it was his birthday, yes. So it's kind of a bad timing. They pass through this town, and they just keep getting stuck in this constant loop that keeps trying to take them to Gatlin. Correct. And a little context that happened before where uh, the story is actually narrated by the character Job. Uh, Job was the younger child who witnessed the actual event in Gatlin in where the children all led by Isaac. Isaac and Malachi, yes. And they murdered every uh, all the parents and adults in the town. And it was at that point that we learned that this town was basically taken over by children. It was. It was basically a ghost town. And then at this point, they had started growing corn everywhere. Because if you've seen the film, these children have a very unhealthy obsession with corn. Now, we never see them eat it. But it's everywhere. It's inside of the schoolrooms. It's inside of the bedrooms. Just everywhere surrounded by corn. Almost like a moniker of evil, if you would. Yes. And so we come to find out very soon that this whole town, this cultist of children, all believes in this person that they call he who is behind the rose. Mm -hmm. And it is basically their corn god. They misconstrue their Bible to believe that this, this corn being... I like to call it a corn being, although we now know that there's a different name of this creature. Right, and it's almost very, it's a very cult-like experience with them. 
they're uh, really obsessive over it, and everything revolves around uh, Isaac, who's able to hear the visions of what he who beyond, uh, I'm sorry, he who walks behind the rose wants. He, he who walks behind the rose, that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. And for a bit, we don't really know if Isaac actually hears these things or not. It, it's very, very cultish. It's very obscure and blurred on the lines of, is he just insane? Does he actually hear this? But he is able to make people listen to him, as we've seen in many cult leaders. And he's a very small child, but he has this complete power over all of the children in this town that basically worship him because he speaks to the man behind the rose. Mm-hmm. He who walks behind the rose. And throughout the film, it's we, we see the struggle for survival as Bert and Vicky try to escape this town of killers. These town of killer kids and their strange rituals. And we see that as they go through, things only get weirder and weirder as they're really unable to discern, are these kids lying, are they not lying, and what's going on. So the central plot kind of unfolds when they out of nowhere crash into a child just in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. They pull over and realize that this child, who we've already seen, has had his throat slit somewhere in the rose. Right. We have Malachi to blame for that. And just for context, I, Malachi is essentially Isaac's right-hand man. He's his enforcer of the laws that Isaac lays down. Yes, and he's probably about double the age of Isaac, I would say. I would say Isaac's like maybe 9, and Malachi's at least 16. Yeah, something like that. Pretty close to 18, I would I would guess. Right. And so it goes to show that they have this 9 or 10-year-old controlling an entire population of children, even those that are double his age. But so they start to realize that something is wrong with this. They didn't just hit a kid in the middle of the road. This kid was killed and then hung up like a scarecrow in the middle of that road. Uh, not, he just ran over. He was just walking through, cause grabbing his throat, and then he was uh, hit later. That's what it was. My bad. Because it's so jarring, and I had to almost go back and rewind to see what happened. It was a very fast scene, and if you weren't paying attention, it did look like there was a bunch of corn stalks on him, but it was just him walking through the corn. Yeah, got stuck to him, I guess. Yeah. And when he does get hit by the car, we see that um, our main protagonist, Bert and Vicky, are then stalked by the children who killed uh, that child. Yes. And these children are guided by the belief that Bert and Vicky are their next list of sacrifices. Because as we see, especially with the gas station, everyone's in on this. And any person that is unfortunate enough to go through Nebraska, and in general it's kind of unfortunate to go through Nebraska, (laughs) they are then targeted by these children and then hung up and sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose. Which I think is a little bit horrifying because we never really get a clear picture of who he who walks behind the rose is or what it is. Yeah, for all we know, he's just kind of this made-up concept, but obviously later on we realize that it is a very real threat. Mm -hmm. And while they're uh, searching for what goes on and trying to find a town to go call the police with because they just discovered a killed child... They manage to get into uh, Gatlin. They realize that nobody's there, and all the while they're being stalked by these children, only for them to go to a house that they seem seems abandoned to find our other main characters, Job and Sarah. Yes, and they are two little kids, probably around the same age as Isaac. I'd say they're a little bit younger. A little bit younger, especially Sarah, I would say. Five and six. Yeah, maybe five, six, somewhere 
I would say six or seven, maybe. Definitely elementary school age. Yes. But you can tell that they do not like what the rest of these children are doing. They're scared of it, and as they should be, because it seems pretty authoritarian that the circumstance that everyone's in. You can't listen to music. You can't play board games. You can't draw. It's, it's very systematic. It's a huge systematic desensitizing of everybody to make sure that they follow Isaac. And Isaac's law uh, is very firm. And yes. those who uh, break that law are punished severely as we are. It's implied. Isaac will not allow any dissent towards him because he believes that he is the only one that is hearing the right words. But what's interesting is that Sarah has this gift. And you see it in the very beginning through her drawings. She has this sense of premonition where she's able to know what's about to happen. You see in the beginning of the film she is drawing their yellow car with the two main characters driving through Gatlin. Right, and she's able to, uh, like you said, she does get these premonitions which she draws down onto paper. And from here we see that Bert and Vicky enter the house and they find these two children and like any reasonable adults, they get very concerned that no one's out there. Yeah, because you have to wonder, how are these children surviving by themselves? And you also have to wonder, why are they out there by themselves? Where are the parents? What's going on? Why is nobody in the town? And that's when they start getting hints and clues that there's something severely wrong when the children, Job and Sarah, make it very clear that they're afraid of Isaac and Malachi. And they should be afraid of Isaac and Malachi for all we've seen. But <laughs> yeah. the only reason Sarah and Joby are still alive is because of the gift that Sarah has. Right. Isaac sees it as a um, almost a conduit. Almost. It's, it's holy to him. It's very holy. Yes. Her gift is something that they want to idolize and look up to. But, of course, Sarah and Joby are very strong dissenters to this corn belief that they all follow. Correct, and we see that as the struggle for survival continues and Vicky gets captured and is ultimately going to be sacrificed only for Malachi to betray Isaac. Yes, and Malachi very much does betray Isaac. He tries to set him against him later on in the film and tries to get all the other children to realize that Isaac is just supposedly spewing out lies. That he lost the gift of the voice because no one can see the power behind it and that everybody can see what Malachi has done. Yeah, because Malachi at this point is doing a lot more than Isaac. He's his right-hand man, but he is doing just about everything. He's doing all of the killing. And in the beginning, Isaac is just standing outside of that little saloon, very mm -hmm. suspiciously just looking and watching what happens because he doesn't really do anything himself. Absolutely not, which is a key factor of, if you look at cults in general, it's not the leader doing it, but people who follow the leader. And it's the leader's voice who, you know, really lets people know, because I think it's to keep that image of, I didn't hurt you. Yes. You know, I'm, I agree. I, you know, in a way, he's sinless in that way. Just give him a little bit of an edge over these children. Yeah, and that's kind of how he commands them, because he's the only one that seems to have the clean hands. Mm-hmm. And from here we see that another key information is that on the first night of any one of the members' 19th birthday, they are sacrificed. Yeah, and why 19? I believe 19 is because 
you know, I guess you say when you're 18, you're an adult, but you're a very young adult. Yeah, maybe it's because, I mean, 19 is the last year of being a child, technically, because you mm-hmm. go from teenager to your 20s. You're no longer, you're not turning 20 teen, you're just turning 20. 20 teen. <laughs> 20 teen, yeah. Yeah, and and for that, we think that, okay, maybe, you know, it makes sense that he would want to keep only children because, you know, children are very impressionable. They are very impressionable. Even when you're 19. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was so easy for Isaac to kind of gather this army of children. I mean, you kill their parents. Who else are they going to lean on besides Isaac? Exactly. Who seems to be preaching these words that are very much misconstrued from the Bible. Yes. And so now we look at, um, later on throughout the film, the uh, Isaac is betrayed and Malachi takes over to try to kill the outsiders, as he calls them, and spill the blood to appease he who walks behind the rose, which he did describe as a god who requires blood and sacrifice. Yes, and that we see is very clear. But they also describe he who walks behind the rose as a shape. And that's the most description we really get is that he is just a shape. Mm-hmm. He's just a form, if you would. Yeah. And later on, you see he just kind of looks like a thundercloud, but fiery. He looks like a very misconstructed, I guess you could say, mist. Yes. Very much like a mist, like some sort of like haze or a cloud. Mm-hmm. Formless yet ever-present. Yes. And it's interesting because it's one of the only Stephen King adaptations we've seen where they aren't given some sort of human-esque form. Right. And we see that, you know... In many films, which we'll get into later and in how it connects, that, yeah, this is one of the only ones where, you know, he who walks behind the corn is really up to the viewer's imagination. Yeah. You can you kind of want to figure out what they look like. I just kind of imagine some big, like, looming scarecrow of some sort because it's corn. Like, either they look like a giant corn or they look like a scarecrow. I imagine a dragon only because of one of the pictures. Oh, you know what? That is a good point, because there I never really questioned why they had that, mm-hmm. but considering that the cloud looked kind of fiery, I could imagine a dragon. Absolutely, and we see that the only way to stop he who walked behind the rose was to destroy the rose, and at the end of the movie, we find that they uh, burn. Yeah, the, they, uh, they tap into the gasoline supply, which is very vital to these children. They don't really say why the children need the gasoline. But it's very key, as Isaac said so. Yeah. I still want to know why. Do do you have any idea why the gasoline was so important? Because from what I've seen, that was the only reason they were keeping the gas station guy alive, the mechanic. I'm assuming it was to power certain farm equipment to help keep the uh, farm going, or the, or the, the corn. Yeah, but we also never really see the children working the fields. Which is also true, and we see that the fields have a mind of their own. Yes, they do have a mind of their own. You see there's that scene towards the end where Bert is being basically strangled by the corn, and he has to cut through it with a knife. But the little corn husks are basically like hands. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it, it's like they're their own entities in themselves. They become very um, human-like. Yeah. They, they behave in human-like uh, ways and grabbing him and trying to suck him in. Yeah, they have the sense of sentience, really, which... It's interesting because it's one of the first times we see an inanimate object kill 
in Stephen King films. Yeah. So far, at least. And, and what makes a difference is that this is not acted upon by someone else's will. For example, Carrie and Telepathy and other films, we see that it's always them acting upon it, but this was just its, its own mind thinking and doing it on its own. Yeah. But I think we need to maybe hammer into what Sarah's purpose was, because Sarah has that power to know what's happening, much like the girl Charlie in Firestarter. Right, yeah. We see that she, you know, once again, a young girl. Yep, very young girl, yes. Is, roughly the same age. Is gifted a power, gifted an ability, if you would, to be able to manipulate, or I'm sorry, see the future, and in a way, change the outcome based upon it, maybe? Yeah, and within the macroverse, that's a very powerful skill to have to know what's coming and what's going to happen. Right, and I see we we see that you know when we're looking at the characters a bit a little bit deeper, as we move into this uh, part of the uh, show, Isaac himself was almost afraid of it and wanted to tame it. He did, yes, he wanted to use it for his own, but of course Sarah really had no interest in working with Isaac, absolutely none, because she seemed very fearful of uh, Isaac, which, of course, comes with good reason. But at the same time, we see that Isaac said, this is a gift, my child. Yeah, and he knows that it's something that he could use to his advantage. If you know what's coming, he can use her to kind of foretell if there's ever going to be a mutiny, which we see the mutiny happen. And had Sarah been on his side, she probably could have warned him, hey, they're going to try to sacrifice you to the corn god. I, I think in a way she did warn him because, remember, he said that Sarah warned them of the outsiders, and if the outsiders were to flee or their blood or anything like that was to spill, they would lose all control. Right, right. And we see that in Malachi acting out and slaying the blood of those who weren't supposed to be sacrificed yet, Isaac loses control. And the entire village essentially just goes haywire. Yeah, everything goes wrong the second Isaac is about to be sacrificed as well. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting because I've seen this film a good handful of times now, much like you. Mm -hmm. But I was always under the impression that Isaac was, you know, just lying. Like, he was just trying to convince all the people that he and his motives were justified. Well, if you're a cult leader, I can especially assume that, you know, you want to have your flock of believers always believe you at all times no matter what. And I feel like, you know, his his power over it was him pushing Malachi too far. And if he had just encouraged Malachi a little bit more, maybe Malachi wouldn't have uh, betrayed him. Yeah, because you could tell Isaac looked down on Malachi very heavily. I feel as though he was waiting to kill Malachi on Malachi's 19th birthday. Yes, because by this point, Malachi had gotten pretty powerful and... Any sort of mutiny would not have turned out well for little Isaac, who, whose only protection was that little stupid hat he was wearing the whole film and his little Bible. And his little corn cross. His corn cross, yes. I do think the little corn knife was kind of a cool little detail they added in. Yeah, they had a very ritualistic knife. Although I will say the ending of the film has to be... There are a couple of scenes in there that were honestly part of one of my favorites of any Stephen King films we've ever seen. Being the just the logic behind some of the characters, yeah. For example, um, Job, when the young boy, when they finally kill the uh, he who walks behind the rose by burning the uh, corn itself, we see in the back this explosion of fire 
coming out of everywhere and like a face of a skull screaming in the smoke before leaving to the sky. As they're running away to get to safety, Job asks, is he dead? To which Bert answers, yes. And Job stops and goes, well, then why are we running? Yeah, and so do you <laughs> do you think that maybe he was just trying to reassure the child? Because I have to assume that even with the cornrows being destroyed, that force in the air, he who walks behind the rose, was too powerful to be just destroyed through a little bit of gasoline. Well, yeah, and, and he was able to control weather and very various other aspects of just the known world around him. But I just thought it was kind of funny how Job questioned that. He was like, then why are we running if we supposedly killed it? I mean, I think I would too because you can never be too sure mm-hmm. personally, but I don't know. And then we see at the end that there are still those who are loyal to he who walks behind. Yeah, they had very much proven their loyalty to the corn because at this point, it's all they had known. And how are you going to come to terms with the fact that you killed your parents for something that was basically bad to begin with? Precisely. How do you kill, you know, how do you explain away, oh, yeah, we totally murdered our entire families over really nothing? Yeah, and they really did. And that was a very brutal beginning of the film as well, where they just had no shame killing all these adults. And, like, the guy just wanted to give the kid a milkshake. You know, what I found interesting was that they were almost in a trance when they did it. There was no emotion on them. As we've seen in other Stephen King films, you know, there's usually expression in the face of those who are doing the killing. But in these ones, they weren't. They were very emotionless, almost as though they were possessed. And I think that's a very good point, because there is possession very prevalent throughout this film, and I think we'll get into that after this next break. So stay tuned, and we'll try to connect everything that happened within Children of the Corn to that of the Macroverse. We've talked plot, we've discussed the characters, and by this point, you know how we feel about the Stephen King adaptation. Now, it's time for our favorite part of the Into the Macroverse episode, where we bring up our theories and beliefs about how everything happening within this universe is a part of something bigger. That is right, folks. It's Macroverse Theory Time. We are back from our break with Into the Macroverse, where we talk about all things Stephen King's cinematic universe and connect these films to each other. Because if you've read a Stephen King film, everything he writes has to connect to everything else. Yeah, it always it always uh, coincides. And if you're just tuning in, we just talked about the central plot of the film, and we're going to be discussing a little bit more about the uh, characters and how it really connects to everything in the macroverse. Yeah, and right now we are talking about Children of the Corn, and we're trying to figure out what allowed these children to so painlessly kill their entire family and every person that lived in this town. Because like you said earlier, every child in that room when they were killing throughout the town was pretty emotionless, almost like they were being possessed. Right, I said they were very trance-like. And to me, that's a little strange because, as we've seen in all these other films, there's always emotion in killing, especially be it uh, Pennywise, who gets the thrill out of doing it and making sure his victims are scared. But he is also a clown when doing it. 
And Cujo, clearly, you know, he's a dog. Yes. And we've seen it in Carrie. Carrie definitely has emotion when on her face when she's killing. Yeah, just about every film we've seen when there's killing involved, there's a sense of remorse and like, a, I don't want to mm-hmm. do this. We see it in Firestarter as well when they go to kill Rainbird. Like, they didn't want to kill Rainbird. They more or less had to. Exactly. The only sense of emotion that we get is Malachi's wicked smile. Yes, because he has something wrong with his head. He takes pleasure in it. Everyone else just kind of does it aimlessly. Mm-hmm. I feel as though Malachi was really the vessel that he who walked behind the rose wanted, and Isaac was his messenger. Malachi also does have that red hair. Yes. And that, in recent, or in past time, people would think that those with red hair had some sort of demonic spirit within them. Right, yeah, and, and we, we can see that, especially in a lot of Stephen King's writings where he takes inspiration from history. Yeah, and you can tell Malachi has psychopathy of some sorts. Like, he takes pleasure in the killing, mm-hmm. and he's very, very unremorseful about it throughout the entirety of the film, and he wants to kill. He's bloodthirsty. He definitely is. We can see that as the film progresses. Malachi really just, at the end of it, just wanted to murder everyone he can. Just lose control and just give in to his bloodlust. He wanted to betray Isaac so badly for so long. Mm-hmm. And you could tell the plan towards the end where he goes and tries to sacrifice Isaac and turn all the kids against Isaac was very premediated. It was definitely planned out, thought ahead, just finding the right moment to do so. And of course, why not do that when the two central characters of the film, who they knew were coming, appear? Right, you can almost say that uh, it was a it was a coup to show that Isaac had lost favor with he who walks behind the rose. Yes, and we don't necessarily know if he did lose favor with he who, he who walks behind the rose, but it also seems like at some point throughout the film, Isaac had just taken the words of he who walks behind the rose and then started to make his own beliefs against the will of he who walks behind the rose. Almost like he was uh, using it to his own benefit. And he was, yeah, I mean... Obviously, in the beginning, it seems as though Isaac was doing what he was told, but later on, he takes the matters into his own hands and goes against the will of this very powerful entity, this shapeless form that appears to be a fiery cloud in the sky. Right, and what gets me going is uh, the fact that it seemed that the priestess, if that's what we can call her, uh, who was in charge of watching one of their members uh, carve a, well, it, was, it looked like a pentagram, I don't know, upside down pentagram. It, it was a pentagram, yeah, right into the center of his chest. It was. was the star facing downwards? I thought it was facing upwards. I think it was facing upwards, but I, it was... a pentacle. Pentacle, pentacle, there we go, thank it's you. a pentacle, not a gram. Thank, thank you for your advanced knowledge of all things supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, uh, well, I guess you can say that that was also a... I guess you could say a, a different symbol because as we've known in many other films, the Graham version of it, where it's an upside-down star, is a satanic version. The Pentacle uh, was used by one of the knights of uh, Arthur and his round table. And that's interesting because you have to wonder why a Pentacle and not a Pentagram. And I think that kind of rules out any idea of Satan being involved in any of this. Well, perhaps um, this entity or whatever it was was trying to mock, you know, like, the good of the pentacle in, like, you know, 
terms of thinking of uh, King Arthur's table and that one specific night. But I think it's still significant that uh, they had a priest who was not Isaac, who was not Malachi, really run that part. And it was almost like she to herself held power. Yeah, and we don't really get to see much about what power she has. And you don't really see much of her throughout the film at all, really. You only get some brief glimpses of her, but clearly she also has some sort of power. Yeah, she, she's usually in the background, but she is there a lot. And it seems as though she is one of the central forces behind this cult. Mm-hmm. Like, although you don't see her as much, she is up there with the ranks of Malachi and Isaac. Absolutely. At least she uh, takes orders from directly them and tells others what to do. And we see this when she says, go get Isaac, and and looks like he says, wait, bring Malachi. Almost as though she was planning it with Malachi. Yes, and definitely was not just an afterthought. She made it appear to be an afterthought, Mm -hmm. but they needed Malachi in that moment pretty desperately, clearly. Oh, yeah. I do find it funny how scared all these children are of this one man. Like, he has one little stick in his hand, and they're all acting like he's just going to kill them. Yeah, and we can see that Bert doesn't really want to hurt these kids. No, definitely not. And there was no... Obviously, he's a doctor. Like, he's just Mm -hmm. trying to hurt, hurt, help people. And what I think is interesting is that in all the times that he is attacked and goes to attack back, he doesn't go for violence. Instead, just looks to get rid of their weapon and move on. Yes, correct. We can see that in, uh, in, in the town square when they're circling him. He uh, only smacks the weapons out of the hands and shoves them. And then when he's knocking Isaac or Malachi onto the ground, he just slap boxes him. Mm-hmm. He backhands him. He's not trying to kill him. He's just trying to incapacitate him. I think that also uh, he chose not to punch and use an open hand because as we've seen and in uh, other films and just in general knowledge, when you want to hurt somebody, you punch them with a closed fist. But if you want to humiliate somebody... You open hand slap. Yeah, and that was the moment where he kind of just humili- completely humili- humiliated Malachi. And in doing so, I think that really showed the children, oh my goodness, our cult, our everything is just destroyed now because Malachi was embarrassed. He was very embarrassed. I mean, you just got slapped in the back of the hand by some random guy who before this did not appear to be a threat to any of these cultist children. Absolutely, and we also see that with um, Isaac being strung up, being taken, and sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose, uh, Isaac comes back. Yeah, he comes back as I described it to Levi as being Wendigo-esque, but what did you tell me earlier before this podcast that he appeared to you to be? Uh, I said just possessed. Just possessed. He looked uh, He looked very reminiscent to that of the exorcism with the cut-up face and, you know, different colored skin, which, I mean, he just died, like, what, two minutes ago? I don't think yeah, he decayed that he, much. He did not decay. It wasn't like he was just taken out of the grave. Mm-hmm. He was sitting up there, and it wasn't a very hot day out in Nebraska either. So, like you said, there was not very much human decay that had happened yet. But I think it was pretty, you know, impactful that he did have... More marks on him than I think he should have for what he died from? Yes, definitely. As if something had gone inside of him and torn him up from the inside. Mm-hmm. And we can see that, I, I believe that he was possessed 
by he who walks behind the, the rose. Yes, and that kind of proves the idea that maybe Isaac was listening to he who walks behind the rose all this time, but because he was sacrificed and killed, he came back into his human form and possessed him. Right, I think that um, he came in a form that people recognized. Yes. A vessel of evil that many saw as powerful. Yeah, but I find it interesting more than anything else that in all the Stephen King films we've seen, the corruption is usually of good-natured people. Like in Pet Cemetery, when the child is being brought back to life, they were once pure. Mm-hmm. Here, he, Isaac comes back to life after having already been a bad person. I think it was to show the ultimate corruption of a child. Because regardless, Isaac was still a child, and children are generally seen as innocent. Yes. And especially considering Isaac himself had never had blood on his hands. Which is significant because that is also another form of corruption, being that Isaac was never the one to do the killing. His no. hands were clean. He had clean hands. He was never. He never became a killer because it's usually... Once you kill someone, that's when you change. Here it was that he never had the chance to kill, but he was already corrupted. But then here we go, and he's killed, and he's corrupted to his furthest form. Right. He's he's both corrupted so deeply that it shows on his physical form, and then he grips Malachi's throat and breaks his neck. That was a very brutal scene. <laughs> it was. I mean, and, and I thought it was also impactful because all these children saw Malachi as such an overwhelming brute force. Because even even if he was only like six or seven, he was a big kid. He was a very big, tall kid. I mean, I I was very surprised that he hadn't hurt um, Bert more than he had. Oh, definitely. And the fact that he was able to knock over Bert, who was a full-grown man, with uh, general ease in their fight. Yeah. It's crazy, really, that he was that powerful. But then here we go, and you just see this little nine-year-old Isaac just crush his neck into dust, basically, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. no effort. With, with little effort at all. And then we see all these children run into a barn and attempt to escape the oncoming storm of he who walks behind the rose for disappointing him. Yes. And that's a big part of it, too, is that the children fear this god, they mm-hmm. look up to this god, he who walks behind the rose, but they fear angering him. Right, which is almost like another form we see in cults that, you know, you must listen to one guy or else it'll get mad. And, of course, you know, when it comes to uh, cults and the uh, what we've seen in history, there is no other thing that's really going to scare them like that. They usually make up their own deity or yes. pervert a version of an already existing one. This one was all on its own. Already. It was all on its own. And, of course, a lot of the stuff that Isaac was spewing out was just taken from a misinterpreted Bible. Mm-hmm. But it was still a unique being that was nowhere in any of the Bible that they had clearly read before. Because we can find that to be evident as Bert said himself, do you only take pieces from here that suit you? Yes. Because, as we know, this town is... Like, the guy at the gas station says that this town, only thing they really have is religion. Mm-hmm. And that religion governed that uh, all these kids' lives, which it really did. You know, Isaac had a very firm grip over everybody. Yeah, very strong. And he himself kind of became one of their deities, even though he was a human. 
he was a god for a very good amount of time up until his death. Oh, absolutely, because you remember his word was law. Do not question his word. That's yes, what he said he had basically made himself into a prophet. And if you did, how dare you? How dare, like he said, how dare you question me? How dare you defy me? Yes, mm-hmm. he kind of reminds me though of a Neville Papperman. If you've seen iCarly, I have. You yeah. will rue this day. Rue it. Especially when he's about to die. Yes. And that's when he kind of just goes full crazy. I had to make that parallel because it was really funny to me last night when I was watching <laughs> the film. I was like, he seems a little bit too much like a satirized person in this moment that I know from another show. And it's because of Isaac that we see what he who walks behind the rose can do as strange colors surrounded Isaac and murdered him. Yes. And we really don't know how he died. He was just taken by he who walks behind the rose. Yeah, you don't we don't really get to actually see his death. So to me I think that's also significant because in a way the children didn't see their original idol die. He just died. He just disappeared, yeah. He exploded. Cuz shoot, you're right. And that was a pretty crazy explosion like But then it wasn't even his body that exploded. It was the, the root of the stalk. So I think his body must have just disappeared in that moment because you're right. It, it was like the little scarecrow mount that they had him on behind. That was kind of what caused him to disappear because you don't see like a leg or an arm or anything kind of just absolutely. It's fly just about. it's just the entire form flying up into the air, and how Isaac is just strapped to it essentially. Yeah. Which I guess you could see where he got his ashy color from soot, but at the same time, it was just one stalk. Of corn. One stalk, yeah. And that's one of the few times that they inflict harm upon corn. Exactly, yeah. I never thought about that. And I wonder if that was kind of part of what set off he who he who walks behind the rose. That perhaps they were damaging the sacred place that um, he who walks behind the rose uh, lived. You're right. And let's talk about the specific location where all their cultish behavior takes place. There's this specific spot in, like, the middle of one of these fields. It's called the clearing, as they uh, called it. The clearing. And I have to wonder if they went and they brought one of their tractors and they had cleared out this entire section in the middle of the fields. What I also find interesting is that in this one section, they're protected. And anyone who goes out into the cornfield itself, they hear voices. They get a little, like, you know, very paranoia. Very wigwammy. Very wigwammy. And to me, maybe it's another form of it. Yeah, I mean, as far as we know of, Nebraska could have very well, this specific part of Nebraska could have very well been another Indian burial ground. And that's why maybe corn can grow so easily because the ground was naturally fertilized. Oh, by, by decayed corpses and such? Because remember, the, uh, the, the, uh, as uh, Malachi said, he's a god of blood and sacrifice. So maybe there is bodies underneath. But and, Isaac and was very be. adamant that they can't have bodies there. Yeah, you were not allowed to have dead bodies. You could only sacrifice there. Mm-hmm. And then, I guess, burn. Yeah, we don't really see how they typically sacrifice them, right? Mm-hmm. We're about to, but then they get interrupted, of course. And then we see that the man in blue, who looked like a police officer from before, was also strung up as a sacrifice. Yeah, and they call him a man in blue, but why specifically a police officer? Oh, man in uniform, blue. But you don't think there's a significance to the fact that they chose a cop to string up and kill? 
I think there's more significance in the color. Go into that. My thoughts are because when we think of the color blue, royal blue comes to mind. And it was a very cobalt blue that this uh, uh, specific dead body wore. You're right. But it also did not appear to be very weathered. Precisely. And the fact that maybe this person um, was a cop and we can see that cops were a figure of authority. Yes. And they don't like figures of authority. Absolutely not because the only figure of authority should have been Isaac. Yes. And he came to challenge their beliefs dressed as someone who does have power in garments that are can be considered rare. Yeah. Interesting. So to me, that significance, maybe Isaac was fearful that they might see him as another prophet, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. Maybe they looked up this other figure of authority. Because mm-hmm. you also have to wonder how all these kids were able to just kill a cop. Exactly. It's not easy to do that, I don't think. And then even then, wouldn't more police have been coming to save their partner? Exactly, because even though this is a small town, you have to assume there was more than one police officer. And we don't see the full scale of their carnage. We only see them kill a handful of the population there. Yeah, we're told in one day, all these killed and murdered every adult. And it was so insanely well-coordinated because they had everyone everywhere. Exactly. All at the same time, basically. And they did it from poison to stabbing to strangling. So about the poison, it was, if I remember correctly, one of the employees, an adult employee, who had poured that sugar packet into the coffee pitcher, right? Correct. What was the deal with that lady? Did she know that she was pouring the sugar into there? I believe she did because she, too, was in a trance upon walking out. And maybe she was, what was younger for how she looked, even though she looked pretty old. Yeah. You think that I de-aged her in that moment? Or maybe she saw herself as a sacrifice. Maybe she sacrificed herself later. Yeah, or maybe. Because she too was wearing blue. Shoot, you're right. Blue again. Mm-hmm. Didn't even think about that. So maybe, maybe they idolized the color blue. Or maybe they see it as a challenge to them. Because if you notice, all the colors that the children wear are very dark. Very dark colors, weathered colors, and the only Amish, brightest... I almost. Yeah, and the only brightest was yellow. Yeah, and then you're right, the yellow car mm-hmm. being one of their premonitions. And what, what, do, what in your mind, when I say yellow, what do you think of? Corn. Aside from corn. The sun. <laughs> which gives us life and energy and light and light, which could tear apart the darkness. So you think that they see that yellow as a threat as well? Do you think that they are guided by like a principle of colors? Maybe or that certain things, you know, doesn't doesn't quite click well with them. For example, that yellow car could be seen as light entering, you know, their dark cloud. You're right, because that town was very dull in colors mm-hmm. as well. Not just the children, but everything there. especially And, and specific crayons were banned and not allowed. Color. Drawing, you're right. Color was not allowed. Color and sound, and sound emits light frequency. Mm-hmm. So maybe they are fixated a bit on color. Yeah. Also, it was all white kids. 
but that's another story. But well, they did have uh, a little bit of gray here, and the gray was a very prominent color among them. We see a lot of them wearing gray. You're right. Maybe, hmm. Trying to figure out where to go with this. I don't think that it would have been aliens, but I do think the darker colors represent the shadow that um, was forecasted over them or put over them from this evil entity, from this man who walks behind the rose. Yeah. That maybe he doesn't want bright colors there because it could open up their minds a bit more. And make them less susceptible. And the more you look at darker colors and darker things like that, the more that you yourself become darker and easily susceptible. Yeah, you could also see just how dull these characters were as people. The children, they they seemed like they had lost any of that childhood purity and youth that you would commonly associate with children, laughing, having joy. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You could see that these kids were not happy in their lives. You no. know, it was just work. And that's what starts to make me wonder the emphasis on soul. Mm-hmm. Because as I imagine, when I think of a soul, I imagine lots of different colors emitting from it. Right. And these children, as we know, are pretty soulless. Absolutely. They're dull. They lack any sort of energy in their lives. All they want to do is destroy. But this entire town is just coated in gray. That, and they're trying to sacrifice souls to their god. Yes. You have to wonder if maybe they had given up parts of their soul to become a part of this cult. Absolutely, because think about it. They also had a list of everybody who killed themselves on their 19th birthday. And that was a very long list because we don't get to really figure out how long they have been alone in this town. I assume it was three years. Is that what was said? I, th- I believe it was. And on top of that, there was a massive list. If they, if it was done recently, huge list of people who were turning nineteen. Yeah, and that's interesting because we don't seem to see that many older kids. That's true, and like in much of Stephen King's work, it's almost a transitionary period. For example, in Carrie, we saw that it was a transition from her being a child to womanhood. Yes, and womanhood was feared. Mm-hmm. Maybe they fear the adult. Because, as you know, they don't want anyone over the age of 19 to be alive, maybe because they lose that corruptibility. Yeah, and then look at uh, It. He only attacked children. Only children, yeah. And, and they, you know, that transitionary period, you know, middle school to high school, when you really start to grow up. Okay. And anyone out there listening right now, if you've seen Children of the Corn and you have any perspective to bring upon us any light to throw into our perspectives and our theories, call that KKSM hotline at 760-736-8375. Again, 760-736-8375. Because this film has a bit of an infamy behind it. People know this film. Some of the other films we've seen of Stephen King kind of fall below the grid. This was a very AAA film. Yeah, very, very. Uh, big, big um, production. It had a lot of press, and generally everybody has seen this movie. It has a notoriety to it, like you it said. does. Yeah, a it lot of people out. are uh, very interested in this film, or have seen it at one point. Yes, my parents have seen it. They told me, I always find it funny talking to my parents about movies they've seen, and they, oh my god, I was so scared when I saw it when I was younger. And I'm just watching it laughing. <laughs> right, I watched this movie and I was like, oh, well, how did people get scared? 
I don't, I don't know if we're just too desensitized now or what. Maybe we look at the story and try to find things, I guess, in that way, pick apart the scary. Yeah. I think we are kind of, me and you specifically are kind of key to dissect things. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I also think that it was kind of interesting that um, they don't want people in that transitionary period from child to adult. They don't. They don't like it. They see it as a threat. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, they also got rid of the school. There was no form of education for these kids, which would give Isaac power because that would make him one of the few who can read. You're right, because then they could never read. Because he always threw around that Bible. And from what we can see, it never really seemed to be altered or rewritten in there. But all of these kids were so young when they were first exposed to this killing that they likely didn't know how to read. And as long as well as that, they are in a small religious town in Nebraska. Just in general, a lot of those people probably can't read. <laughs> well, that's a little, it's a bit bold to assume. But um, I would say that if they did get rid of it, you know, if you're not educated, if you don't know how to read or things like that, you are more likely and more susceptible to listen to someone else who seems smarter. Yeah, because he he seemed pretty educated despite just how evil he was. He seemed to be very... You have to assume that whoever he was raised by must have been some sort of figurehead. Likely a religious figurehead. Well, remember, they said that I believe he was the son of a priest. You're right, son of a priest, yes. And assumingly that priest... You know, really instilled in him how to read because for a young child, Isaac's vocabulary is astounding. Oh yeah, he he speaks like he was um, like a character of someone that thinks they're so smart. Exactly. He's like behold or beheath. What else does he mm -hmm. say? Very old English, which old is English. a lost art. You know, not a lot of people nowadays still speak that. Yeah, and did we have a, it, this film took place in what decade? 80s. It took place in the 80s, just like it was filmed in the 80s. Mm -hmm. People in the 80s did not speak like that, and that this town looks so much older than the 80s regardless. Oh, definitely. It looked like it was maybe in the 60s. I was even thinking the 50s. Oh, yeah. It definitely didn't have that feel to it. Especially with the old-timey tunes they were listening to on that record player. Mm-hmm. Almost as the time skipped them. Yes. And that's what I was about to lean into. And I think we should talk about this sense of time skip because time plays a very key role in this film, especially when it comes to the age of 19. Absolutely. Time is always a concept because everything that these people do revolved around time. As we can see, they were very fearful of night. They were, and they tried to avoid it. And even Isaac said, we must get this sacrifice done before the nightfall. And we don't really get to see what happens at the nightfall. Oh, absolutely not. We All we know is that he who walks behind the rose has more power at night. Yes. And he's able to chase people through like these a tremor-like things under the sand. Yeah. And we, we can't even assume what it is. You we know? don't know what was crawling underneath the ground there. Like maybe, maybe we're thinking of like some sort of mole creature. But didn't Pennywise at some point and bury himself? Or am I mis misthinking something? You know, I think he was able to fit himself into anywhere. Yes. And I suppose you could say he fit, he could fit himself into the ground if he wanted to. Yeah. Because he can't take the form of whatever. Because we know that he runs underground for sure. Absolutely. And this is a very strong agriculture district as well. 
mm-hmm. there's probably pipes running all throughout Nebraska. Absolutely. All throughout these fields because no human can just irrigate tens of tens of thousands of acres of corn. Something was possibly traveling traveling through those pipes underground. Absolutely, and I can't and I can't imagine that you know a couple of adults could manage that, much less kids. No, definitely not. So after this break, we'll be closing with our final thoughts and discussing what we think time has to do with this, right? Correct. Anything else we're going to discuss after this? After this, we really want to connect, you know, this to other movies and the similarities between them. More? Are we talking about more about the powers? Powers, how they think, and, you know, how it could relate to everything else that's happened in the Macroverse. Okay, we'll be right back. And in case you're just tuning in, we are talking about Children of the Corn. DJ Jacob Willett here. And DJ Bruce Levi. And in case you are just tuning in, this is Into the Macroverse, where we talk about all things Stephen King Cinematic Universe and connect all of these films to each other. This is episode, I think, 12 or 13, something like that, of a 100-plus episode series that we've been working on. And during that break, we were doing some ghost hunting because... Whoever's been listening before might know that the station has a history of death, much as does Palomar College itself. Uh, One of the monitors in a different room is now turned on. One of the lights has turned off twice. And during the last five minutes of our last part of the segment, DJ Bruce Levi over here was kind of... It's it's a little chilly. It's a little chilly. It's it's freezing in here now. (laughs) Uh, One of the chairs is definitely in a different position than it was before. And so you might have noticed there's a brief... Pause during part That's of this segment. Spooky. Yeah, and now I'm really cold, and I got some goosebumps going on. It's getting even colder. <laughs> um, so you know, it's always lively when we have this show. You know, uh, what is it? We, um, we can say our other guests, uh, Sarah and Kaylin, have uh, seen a couple things every now and then when we're here. They have, and I tend to spend a lot of time in here alone. As as do I, and you know, you, you get the occasional glance of something for me, or you know, stuff. Nothing serious. So far, but um, little spice, little spice. It's always good. But back to the point, uh, we are talking about Children of the Corn, and we're gonna. We've already discussed, you know, a lot of the characters, some motives, uh, you know, the general plot breakdown. We're really gonna get into how this, you know, plays out in the rest of the of the macroverse. Yes, correct. And I think it's really significant, like we said, that um, this does not take place in Maine. It doesn't. In in previous episodes, we've deciphered Maine as the main center of all things paranormal on Earth throughout the Stephen King universe. Yes. And for this one to be a little different is, is a little... It, 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 it's out there. It is. And what I find interesting is that nobody reported on an entire town. Dying, just out of nowhere. Because I can imagine, like, you know, cops... You know, there's precincts. There are. have to, you know, report to the general government. Yes, and you would think that after three years or so, we've deciphered three years being the time range between the murder of these adults and this cultist rise. Right. And nobody, nobody seemed to worry about it. And then, as well as that, you have the guy that runs the gas station saying this is a third person to come through this, the third group of people to come through this town in the last month. Mm-hmm. So no one really goes through this town, but I find that hard to believe because everyone was driving in the 80s. Well, yeah, Bert did say they were taking the back roads. They were taking the back roads, that's true, and 
I mean, I would drive through Nebraska if I had the chance. I like looking at corn. <laughs> <laughs> you going to bite one? I would, yeah. Why wouldn't I? I, don't know, I, like, I love corn. Huh? Might be a person in there. Well, that's part of the appeal. Crunchy. Crunchy, yes. <laughs> you know, and I think it's also interesting that we have seen many government cover-ups within the macroverse. Maybe they knew about this but didn't want to bother it. Yeah, because as we can see, this is one of the stronger forces taking place in the Stephen King universe because there is no tangible human form that we see aside from the possession of Isaac. Exactly, and that this entity or whatever um, is powerful. It can control weather, which not even Pennywise was able to do. No, you're very correct. And weather plays a very large role in the growth of corn. Absolutely, and if you notice, it went from night to day rather quickly throughout this film. You're right. It was Most of the film took place during the day. But it was always dusk. You're right, right, that border between light and dark. Mm-hmm. And it seemed as though after nightfall, these children were just a little bit more on edge, if you would. Yes, and we never really see why, but we have to assume that maybe some bad things come out in the dark. Maybe it's not safe to be out there because if you get lost in those cornfields in the dark, it would be very easy for you to disappear. Absolutely. And you know what I've also questioned? I've always wondered where Isaac's monastery was because he was not in the chapel, as we were able to see before when uh, Job and Sarah were taken to him. He was not in the chapel, but in his own little den, if you would. Yeah, you're right. He had his own little home. Mm-hmm. Which I think is strange because all the other kids are not allowed to go back to their homes. Yeah, it's very taboo for any of the children to be anywhere besides where Isaac wants them. They're not allowed in these homes because they have access to regular commodities like crayons and record players and books. Mm-hmm. Things that Isaac does not want any of these children to have access to. And we were talking about color earlier and the significance of color and how... You know, it seems like light colors, colors that generally inspire creativity or happiness, are not allowed. Not at all. Yes. There's a very much a suppression of personal creativity and thought within this cultist mm-hmm. community that we have seen here. And it seems as though, to me, Isaac was also acting of a, uh, how might you say, this outside force that was acting upon Isaac. Yeah. It also did not it did not like bright colors. You're right. It did not like the fire at the end with mm-hmm. the gasoline very opposed to that. And then we don't really see anything happen during the day. You don't mm-hmm. we don't really see this shadowy figure, this cloudy figure zooming throughout the sky and it hides in plain sight. And I I just got a message from a listener. They said that, you know, they brought up another idea. What about electrical and water companies? Wouldn't they send out people to check things out? To figure out why no one's consuming water and why no exactly. one's consuming electricity? Why, why, why is this place, like, so beaten off the map? I can't imagine, because this is the 80s, okay? Bills were a thing in the 80s. They did exist, yes. And, you know, people were becoming more technologically advanced in the 80s. And there were phones as well. Absolutely. You know, pagers existed. Yes, and for some reason, no one had any of these things, and no company wanted to check it out. No company wanted to know why they weren't getting money. You know, you can imagine mail was being sent there. 
Yeah. And yet we see nothing happen. We don't see a UPS truck going through. We don't see people going to under, they don't see the district trying to figure out why there's no teaching being done. Exactly. And you generally do have to report that to the government that, you know, children are enrolled in school and whatnot. And I assume before, you know, the eventual takeover of this town that they were sending those reports to the government only to have them stop and the government wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, and this is a very functional town. It's a little industry of its own because farmlands like these contribute a lot to society. What's happening when they're no longer getting a very large supply of the world's corn? Exactly. And this listener also proposed another thought, that being maybe the the demon the kids are protecting or the entity, whatever, makes anyone who comes through forget what happened. You're right, yeah, and we see that in a lot of other Stephen King works, that there's this way, this, like, mind-changing ability to just eliminate thoughts. And I find it more significant, adults in specific have been targeted in Stephen King's work, and it seems like all the adults forgot about the town. You're right, yes, they don't remember these things that have happened. That maybe, you know, this entity realizes the power that these kids have because, you know, a lot of the times in different religions it says that children have the most faith. Yeah. And this demon, you know, sees that and doesn't want adult thought in there, you know, adult questioning. Because they are, adults are a lot more rational and level-headed than children. You can tell a child something and they will believe you. Mm-hmm. And this is what I believe that this species, this creature in the sky that hides behind the rose is preying on. Absolutely the thought that, you know, all this power and absolute belief, you know, belief beyond, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you would, that this creature is there and they serve this creature, this entity. Yeah. And I, what was the, you were mentioning the name of this creature that you had discovered. I did do a little research, some digging around and on uh, some uh, different fan thoughts that maybe the creature is Randall Flagg. Now, tell us a little bit about Randall Flagg, because before this, I did not know. We have talked countless times about Robert Gray, who is Pennywise's true form and who we see in many other films, such as Dreamcatcher. But this Flagg type person we have never heard of in mm-hmm. any of the Stephen King films up to this point. I'd also like to make the point that no family also visited this entire community. Or if there was family, maybe they killed them. Yeah. I mean, I have to assume anyone that came through this town was killed because it's very suspicious. Well, think about relatives, you know. If you don't hear from your relative for years and years and they're prominent figures in this tiny, small town, wouldn't you be worried? I would be, and I would go down there to check in on them. Mm -hmm. And if I was driving through a town that looked like it just had corn growing through the cars... And go, growing through the windows, something was wrong. But no one ever bothered to call out or bring attention to it. Absolutely. And back to the topic of Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg is a reappearing character within a lot of Stephen King's novels and works. He's seen in The Dark Tower. He's seen in The Stand and many, many works. He is the most reoccurring character, actually. And he is... Very powerful entity and is able to essentially control almost anything. Yes. 
And I believe that he does get a lot of his power from this area because of the faith of the children. Yeah, because as we've seen throughout the Stephen King universe, believing in something is what makes it so powerful. Absolutely. We see this a lot, especially in It, where if they don't believe in Pennywise, he loses his power. Yeah, and with Pennywise, you know, that was the main driving factor. His downfall was the fact that they weren't afraid and they didn't believe in him any longer. Exactly, and that was how they shrunk him down into a little tiny little baby clown. And they were able to crush him through the power of being an adult. Yeah, because that was part part of the film is that they kind of they grow into adults very quickly throughout the course of what they've experienced. Mm-hmm. They lose many years of their youth. But as a result, they become adults and they start to not believe in these little fairy tales anymore. Exactly, because you know, you know, we're adults. I don't believe in a werewolf is going to come out and murder me. You don't? Well, you know, at times maybe. But don't you like live in a pretty woodsy area? Yes. <laughs> and you don't. But, but generally, you know, I th- let's think about the things that Pennywise made these other children see from you know Paul Bunyan's statue coming alive. Yes. You know, I'm, you know, in, in my age, I can rationalize that that'll never happen. Yeah, I don't, I'd hope not. I mean, we'll, I mean, we'll see. Oh, then again, we have seen some weird supernatural stuff just today in this station. So who knows? Maybe your hydro flask is going to come alive. Uh, I hope not. I just want ice in this bottle, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for reminding me to get some water. And if you're listening, take a drink of water. You're dehydrated. But I also think that it's really significant that, you know, it is only children and that Stephen King and his works really targets the fact that only children were able to do this and they were a huge threat to the adults. There is not a Stephen King film to this date, I don't believe, that does not include children as one of the central characters. Because it kind of brings in this juxtaposition. And, and, and the only person who really was an adult that they interacted with was a single lone gas station man. Yeah, you're right. But about that, why did they keep this man alive? Well, he knew how to run a lot of their uh, diesel and gasoline stuff. And he was generally lonely, you know, and with the threat of, if you don't listen to us, we're going to kill you. And then they kill him after he kind of warns them to leave the town. Which disappointed the uh, the being, according to Isaac. Yeah, because they didn't they didn't want to kill. I think there was a spider by your head right there. Oh my god. <laughs> Thank you for the warning. Yeah, there was a spider by you. It's a little kill that. Hello. Sorry about that, folks. There was a there was a nasty uh, nasty spider coming down from the ceiling onto uh, Jacob. There. I bring thy foot upon you. And there went Pennywise. <laughs> Goodbye, crab creature. But yeah, and it, it seemed that the you know they targeted people who were weak, and the only person who really was left standing was this person who was isolated from everybody else, and with his dog, who later both were killed. I wish they didn't have to kill the dog, Stephen King. Why do you always have to kill the animals? Well, I think it's to show the dehumanization of these children. That's that, fair. That not even something as innocent as dog, because children do always have that connection with animals, and they were willing to just slaughter it. You see children and dogs go hand in hand. You see there are stories of dogs saving children from drowning in rivers and, you know, saving them from intruders and stuff like that. And yet still, this dog just is scared of these people. 
Yeah, it, he's, and uh, he immediately sees these children as hostile, which is unusual for dogs. You know, they generally see children, and they're not one to attack unless they're Cujo. Unless they're raised to not like children, although I do know some dogs like that. Uh, Cujo. Cujo. Yeah. Yes. But ultimately, they, they started killing, you know, the, the poor animal and had no remorse for it, just like they didn't have any remorse for killing other people. Yeah. And so that's what I mean when these humans are dehumanized. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's very significant that these uh, children were, in a way, beyond saving. They were beyond saving. Because let's say that, you know, we can assume Bert and Vicky leave. Let's say they go get police. Are the police really going to check it out? I would like to hope they would, but probably not. But what would be the fallout? A bunch of kids there who yeah. are living like, you know, who are living generally pretty primitive? Very primitive. No TV, no electronics, no radio. Regress to a time of, uh, you know, really just faith? Yes. And and they spoke like they were from a different era? They did speak like they were from the early to mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. And you have to wonder why that is. Well, I think because at that time, you know, faith was all that a lot of people had in yes. that time, and it was a very prominent thing. And during uh, that time, you know, we see anyone who's different was killed, and technology was bad. You're right, yes. That is a time where they kind of thought technology was the devil. Absolutely, and if you and I believe that they figured... If there is technology, they're going to tell the people. Tell the people is going to break up their little cult, and that's evil. Anyone against them is evil. Yes. Anyone outside, evil because they're not like them. Because they're outsiders, yes. Outsiders and adults. Mm-hmm. Two things they really don't like. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it seems as though, you know, Firestarter was the only one that really had competent adults in it. You're right. I mean, I would say in this film, though, Bert and Vicky were... Relatively competent. Well, I mean, in the sense that, you know, other adults, you know, the, the general adult population is pretty incompetent in a lot of Stephen King films. You're right. And for this one in specific, it seems as though they were really focusing on the fact that being an adult was some horrific sin. Yeah, and it's not because they think that they lose their pure, their purity when they become adults, because as we see, these children have lost their purity a long time ago. But I think it's more they're losing the faith. They start to question more. You start to think more freely. And if you can do that, you, you know, you're not going to be as susceptible to somebody's lies. Yeah. And that was made evident and after the, um, the humiliation of Malachi, we see Bert throw their entire religion at them, saying, what kind of God asks for this? Why would you do that, huh? You tell me. And then the second that they hear this dissent, they hear the challenging of their beliefs, they kind of go with it. They start to believe Bert, and they start to question why they're listening to Isaac and Malachi. Another another figure of authority. Yeah, because they, they knew that they had to fear Bert and Vicky, because mm-hmm. they knew they couldn't take them down, at least not by themselves. Absolutely, and we see that in... Most Stephen King, you know, authority is a huge factor that plays in almost anything. You know, in Carrie, authority was against her. Yes. In uh, It, no, the authority did not listen to them. 
in Dreamcatcher, the authority was hiding everything from them. Hiding and dismantling it. Yes. And in this one, authority is the ultimate downfall. I like that thought a lot. That authority, depending on its form, shapes the events of what happens in the Knockverse. I think that's evident in this film. You're very right about that. And I like that you're focusing on the authority because kids are known to be rebellious, but not this rebellious. I mean, I've never gotten so angry where I was going to take a sickle to authority. Sounds like a personal experience. Speak for yourself, Levi. I said it never happened to me. Never happened to you, yeah. And, uh, did you have an experience where you wanted to take a sickle to authority? Um, Not back then, more just now. <laughs> But I think that, you know, the authoritarian rule that Isaac had over these people and that it was a child doing it rather than a, uh, you know, normalized figure of authority. Made them connect to it more, mm -hmm. right? Or ma gave more power to he who walked behind the rose. Because... Well, Isaac thought he was an authority. He really was not an authority figure. He had his he had his reins around the children, but he had no control over he who walks behind the rose. And I think that when we look at authority, you know, when I say authority figure, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Political powers for adults. And he who walked behind the corn had no form. You're right. Very formless, shapeless as it's described. So, in a way, the authority was not there, but only was a was through the power of suggestion. Yeah. And with that thought, I think if it's not there, if it is just these blinding colors, you know, there really isn't something to be afraid of aside just the thought of and, you know, much like Pennywise, lift it to your, the imagination of what, you know, it really was in the corn. I like that thought. Sorry, you're, you're throwing some really, really good curveballs at me right now. That the power of suggestion and belief fueled this, and that this entity, he who walks behind the corn, was whatever you were afraid of most. And in this case, as they are children, the fear was authority, correct? I believe so. The fear was... That something in there is going to get me. I don't know what it is, but it, it's going to get me, and I can only listen to these people. Because they believe that Isaac was the only one that really knew what they were going up against. Yeah. Because what, what they believed in was also what they were going up against at the same time, because they feared what they knew. Mm -hmm. They feared what they believed in just as much as they liked what they believed in. It, it, was, a, it was a huge contradiction within itself, which we see in a lot of cults. Yeah. You know, and I believe, you know, that that fuel of the fire also gave it more power. You know, you don't know what I am. You don't know what I can do. I just exist. Yeah, because you see just how powerful this figure is. And I believe it was even cemented more in the sacrifice of Isaac because they all just witnessed something take it. And it was even more significant because when um, we see Job turning the valve and going after the Molotov cocktail that was going to blow up the corn, all that we knew was that something was in the dirt. We don't know what, 
but something was there. Could have been a giant sandworm. You know, tremors. It could have been anything. Could have even been alien tentacles. And even uh, Bert was afraid of it. He didn't know what it was. Yeah, he feared it, and he was probably one of the most rational people out there. I mean, he was a doctor. And what what better figure of authority to believe than a man of science, like a doctor? Yes, exactly. And even he didn't know what to think of this. He was scared, taken aback by it, and ultimately was thrown out of his element. Because when you think of a doctor, these people are known cures. You go to them to be cured, to be saved from whatever ails you. Yeah. And in this sense, what ailed these children was their faith, in a sense, uh, their absolute devotion to something that they couldn't even see. And it took science, in a way, to stop it? It took a man of science, a man of ration. Rationale, sorry. Mm-hmm. And even after all that, we see that their faith was still there. Because at the very end, a girl with a sickle comes. To finish what Isaac started. And she fails, of course. Absolutely. Which, honestly, was one of the funniest endings of any Stephen King movie. It just abruptly the end. Like, I don't, I don't know how she managed to fail killing him. Like, that would have been pretty pretty easy. Well, I think it was that, car. I think it was that, you know, she screamed and let her know, I must, you know, finish what he started. And then, you know, Bert was like, oh my goodness. It's always that hubris, the, the need to announce what you're about to do, mm-hmm. that saves them. Absolutely, or the need to be recognized. But you have to wonder what happened after that. Like, did they get to the next town, and did they... There was still a dead body in his trunk. Like, I, I imagine that's going to be a pretty terrible thing to explain. Yeah, there's this group of kids, and we um, we saw them murder a bunch of people. We think they took out the town... But there's a dead body in my trunk. It wasn't me who slit his throat, though. I promise you it wasn't me, even though I have a very large stabbing wound on my chest. Which also is a question of authority. Yeah. And maybe the entire macroverse revolves around the exchange of power of authority. I like that thought, and it's a very good closing thought that we're going to have to put that lens into perspective for the rest of the Stephen King films we go through. Because before this, we haven't really considered authority too much as one of the key factors in what gives these beings their power. Mm-hmm. And but- on that note, I would like to say thank you, everybody, all the listeners out there who tuned in to Into the Macroverse this semester. Yeah, this was a great semester for the both of us. We both had some very great shows. If you listened yesterday, you heard his Pal- Palomar Power Paranormal. And let me tell you, he put a lot of work into that. <laughs> but we'll be back in about two weeks or so to continue this web of Stephen King's Into the Macroverse. We're, gonna conti- we're not too sure what film is next. I think we're going to focus on some of those mini-series because they're rather long, and now that it's summer... Salem's Lot, some Love of the Stand, both the remake and the original. Yeah, both of those, and then we got the Mist mini-series, which was one of my first Stephen King experiences, actually. We'll cover both the movie and the show. Both the movie and the show, yeah. Mm-hmm. But for everybody out there listening, I'm DJ Bruce Levine. And I'm Jacob Willett. And this has been Into, Into the, the Macroverse. Macroverse. Thank you.
You've been listening to Levi Hill and Jacob Willett, and this has been a speculative dive into yet another one of Stephen King's twisted tales. So don't trust that sound you hear. Always keep a watchful eye, and don't look under the bed, because you never know what you may stumble upon when you wander your way into the macroverse.